You're listening to Self-Propelled, a podcast that explores the process of turning ideas into reality and the secrets behind keeping up momentum once you've started. I'm Dave Cornthwaite, and for 15 years I've experimented my way through a series of personal and social adventures, including Expedition 1000, a self-set mission to complete 25 different non-motorized journeys, each over 1,000 miles. I also founded the Yes Tribe, an optimistic community bonded by the idea of making the most of their time and potential, often by saying yes more. Join me for stories and conversations with self-starters, athletes and entrepreneurs who need nothing more than a good idea to add a little fuel to that pilot light burning deep within us all. Welcome back to the Self-Propelled Podcast. By day, Alex Cooper works in advertising as a freelance writer and director of comedy adverts and then spends his spare time writing and acting in his own comedy sketches. Alex has also written articles for the Metro about alcoholism, mental health and sober dating, which I definitely need, did, need, did some advice on. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. Let's set the scene. Where where are you speaking to me from right now? Um, well, Dave, I'm currently moving house. Uh, so I am, which is... Um, which is always glorious during the middle of a uh, a total UK lockdown. Um, so I'm uh, currently staying at a friend's house, and I'm I'm just after this call. I'm actually about to uh, move into my new my new flat. With any luck, we'll get in there before the the critical lockdown comes yeah. into play. Hey, <laughs> and are, are you are you in London? Uh, yes, I'm in London. So I'm in Richmond at the moment, and I'm moving into a place in Stoke Newington. Mate, going up in the world. Mm, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for, for giving us a little bit of your, your time this afternoon. I'd love to dig into your your career as a freelance writer and also the comedy side of things uh, before dwelling on coronavirus. Uh, where where did you get started? Have you have you always been creative or did this happen by accident? Um, well, I thought I was. Um, and then with all of these things, I think... I always thought I was always a writer. I was always, I read a lot when I was younger. I kind of hammered through comics and I always had quite a fantastical imagination. I think, I think embarrassingly when I was eight, I tried to actually pull myself into a comic because I preferred it to real life, which is a worrying state of affairs. Um, but then actually, as is often the way with these things, I had a te- an English teacher that I didn't quite see eye to eye with. I was quite disruptive, I think, and she hammered my confidence. I'm not saying I'll accept the responsibility of the fact that I was probably very disruptive, but it meant that I didn't properly write again for a long time. And then I went into a job in the advertising industry that I, I mean, it's, it, it was in account management, so it was kind of the opposite side of creative. And it was quite an old school advertising agency um, who basically said that you're either creative or you're not like it was a binary thing. Hmm. And that always sat really badly with me um, because I just thought I applied to this job by chance and now I'm being pigeonholed and it didn't really, that didn't work because to me ideas came from anywhere. What I thought that these people had over me was uh, time and experience, you know, being able to have that, element of freedom to be able to look at uh you know copy or advert uh, adverts or tv scripts 
and just sit with it and properly immerse themselves in it. And because I was in account management, it's a very different, very high intensity. You're always on the phone. You're speaking to clients all the time. You're never going to be able to get that creative headspace. Um, so after I actually I left there in 2014 and went to head up a, re a startup comedy content agency. It's very niche. <laughs> and there I had the time and um, a friend and I uh, were in a Amdram play that most of my friends left at the interval for, which was <laughs> really supportive. <laughs> I actually had a friend of mine who was kind of negotiating an evacuation process in the interval. I remember he was helping people down the back steps. Anyway, we kind of decided, um, we decided that the time had come where we'd spoken about comedy often enough um, and wanting to do something and go up to the fringe maybe. And we were just talking, but not putting anything into action. So we're in danger of being those people. And we thought, once I, once I had this new job, I had a lot more time on my hands because at the ad agency, it was about 60 to 70 hours a week. Um, and it was really intensive. Whereas this new job, actually, I finished at six. And so we went up to the fringe and then it kind of went from there. Do you think time is the key to to putting into place these these dreams, creative or otherwise, that we so often have? I think for me you need to have time pondering things so you can then get better at pondering them, if that makes sense. So when it comes to script writing, at the very beginning, or when we wrote our first Edinburgh show, it took a long time because, I won't lie, 90% of my ideas were shit. <laughs> but, um, you know, so you need to go through this process of actually articulating what makes a good comedy sketch or what makes a good script and what doesn't. Mm. And you never get, there's no golden rule to it, but ultimately you start to learn formulae and processes um, that help you then work these things out quicker but I do think time in the in the first instance is is pretty crucial because you need that mental headspace to be able to ponder things um, and I think that also means pure time because quite a lot of the time I will there's no, you never know when you're going to be necessarily creative I think you slowly learn when those periods are and at the beginning for me I knew that it was the first thing I in the morning when I woke up and so I needed to keep that time sacred, even if it was half an hour, because I knew if I focused on other more menial stuff or things that were a lot more, you know, logistical, um, I would have wasted that time. Hmm. I think quite often the best, my best thoughts come in the shower. Would you say that your best ideas for writing actually come when you're not working towards that writing itself? Totally. I think that it's a bizarre irony of being in an office where you are hired to have inspiration from nine till six sitting at a desk where there is nothing to inspire you um <laughs> and you know that just seems so mad for me and i think it's most people stay at their desk because they feel bad about leaving whereas in reality if they went for a walk like you said i actually find that ironing works really well for me <laughs> but um i think it is that process of doing it's almost switching off one part of your brain, isn't it? So I find cycling really amazing. Hmm. Um, in the shower, I have, so it means that sometimes I have to have really long showers. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I, ironing as well. Like if I'm doing writing with my 
comedy partner, I will just iron all of the shirts in his house. Um, because I feel like you, because you're focusing on that, I think there's a cathartic element, but also it gets you focusing on something so you don't ultimately scrutinise and judge your ideas before you've had a let, before you've given them a chance to breathe, if mm. that makes sense. Mm. Do you find that your your writing partner invites you around more often than he would otherwise, just because you do the ironing for him? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm working through his, uh, his partner's ironing at the moment as well. So it's, uh, I'm a valuable resource in these uncertain times. <laughs> tell, tell me about work. You know, you're, what does director of comedy adverts actually mean? Mm, it's a good question. Uh, no, I think, uh, so what happens is, it's funny because I actually work, I worked at an ad agency where the whole process was because you were siloed at every part of the process. So production sat in, sat separately from the scripting, who sat separately from the client handling, who sold in the scripts. Whereas by working at a startup company, I then realized how to make films. And now I just do it myself. So I work with brands who have a brief. So for example, I worked with Facebook last year and they had in their words, a very boring advert, mm-hmm. um, a B2B advert that they wanted to make funny. Mm-hmm. So they came to me with a script skeleton. So basically all of the key product points that they wanted to have within the film. And then I wrote the script and then shot and produced the film. So I then directed it and then brought in the crew to bring the rest of it to life. So the cinematographer or DOP, uh, sound, talent actors etc what's the what's the coolest job you've worked on and would we have seen it somewhere <laughs> uh no uh, <laughs> yeah. i love when people ask that and they go have we seen any of your work and they go probably not um but there's here's hoping that that might change in the future um i think for me the coolest oh god i'm gonna think now dave I think the um, I think the nicest jobs that I get to work on are the ones where I get to do the whole process rather than just the directing. Hmm. So, with Facebook, for for example, it's kind of almost like um, I actually really enjoyed that process because the client were also in LA, so they weren't there all the time, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is also quite useful, and they were lovely, which um, isn't often the case, but. I would say for lack of inspiration about another job, I would say that the Facebook one was amazing, as was one actually that I did for Simba, this the mattress company. Yeah. Um, because they were willing to, like we were saying before about when it comes to comedy, I think people are really nervous about it, mm. especially brands, because they don't want to, they don't want to do anything that has the potential to provoke complaint. So they kind of want something that is very positive. Comedy in the branded world is always positive. There can be no negatives. If you're kind of, if you embrace the the bravery of kind of a Marmite, um, not a lot of brands will do that because Mm -hmm. it means that they're opening people up to talk about their brand in a negative way, whereas actually they want it to be a very specific kind of comedy. However, once you know that and you stop fighting against it, which I think is the ultimate killer of creativity because you're going to try and push a brand into doing something they don't want to do Mm. I think it becomes very freeing because 
um, you are challenged. The thing I love about it compared to just writing comedy films is that you're challenged to turn what are quite mundane, usually product points into something entertaining. Um, so it requires slightly more of my creative brain than me just thinking about comedy sketches. I'd say both are very tricky because the metrics of which are a bit different, where in a branded capacity, you're wanting someone to, um, you're driving consideration, you know, or getting someone to click on the website. Where in the branded pers- uh, resident comedy perspective, you're looking to get people to react, to share. You want to do that in a branded setting, but I think there's less pressure on you to do so because there's other elements at work. Whereas comedy is out and out, you want people to watch this and share this. And if it doesn't, then, you know, on a social media perspective, you failed. Hmm. I can't remember what your question was, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Have we seen any of your... You mentioned you mentioned Simba, Simba mattresses. No, this is all interesting stuff. Um, yeah, sorry, go on. Uh, are Simba mattresses as comfortable as the adverts make out? Oh, hugely so. Um, no, they are they are good, but they actually didn't give me a free mattress off the back of it, which or any of the crew, which we're all quite gutted about. Saying it on a podcast, I don't think is going to change that though. If anything, I think it'll be quite the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> my my aim is eventually to grow this podcast big enough so I get free mattresses at every back and call. But I'll I'll let you know when that happens in about twelve years. Yes, please do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's what's the aim with with work going forwards? There's there's obviously an element of frustration working in advertising. You don't always get your own way, and when when you're in creative and comedy, you you want to you want to be able to flex your muscles. Is this why you do the freelance stuff on the side? Totally. I cannot um, state enough how important it's been for me to have a creative outlet where clients can't screw with it. Mm. You know, like, I think it's so important to have something that is purely yours that sits apart from work because so often I've been in agencies where you can see that the script that we're working on is that particular person's sole creative um, project at at that given time. Mm. So it means that when the client screws with it, which they're more than entitled to do, given they're paying for the entire thing, um, (laughs) mean that um, they, and I've been in that position as well, where you take it personally, because you've given something undue consideration, and there are reasons as to why you've taken the script in a particular uh, direction, Hmm. and the client doesn't quite get it. However, um, I would say that from doing comedy on the side, I become less attached to those projects because I recognise that it's not, and this is actually about working in a creative partnership that I also think is very important to hammer into me because it's always easy for me to work on my own because I think my ideas are great. (laughs) You know, everybody does. You get attached to an idea and you go, oh my God, this is amazing. And when someone challenges you on it, which my partner does, like I say to you, you, said to you at the beginning, 90, I would say 99% of my ideas are shit. Um, It is nice, even though at the time I probably don't welcome it, for someone to go, nah, that idea is shit, mate. Because then it means that it frees you up to actually get to a good idea quicker. And it also keeps my ego in check, Mm. which I think is hugely important in a creative setting. Because with no challenge, um, nothing gets better, you Mm. know. And I think ultimately if you 
but also you you have to take everything in perspective like you said with with adverts um you're not paying for them and if the client i i know from being in account management as well from having come from that um from that life before i started in creative i know the importance of firstly spelling out your working to a client as to why you've made specific decisions and being able to articulate them clearly is just as important as the decision you've made but also if it's not right for them, it's not the right idea. So you need to use your creativity again to come up with something which is another idea which ticks both boxes because otherwise you're going to keep on forcing an idea and what will happen then is it will just be death by a thousand cuts Hmm. and neither you nor the client will come up with an idea that you're happy with by the end of it. There's one thing working with a writing partner who's on the same wavelength but isn't afraid to push back. And then conjuring up an idea which you think is absolutely brilliant. It's your baby and you know it's going to rock. And then the client turns around and says they don't like it. How do you, how do you deal with that? How do you, how do you let off steam? Um, I think I meditate a lot. Uh, I remember my, so I'm in AA and I've got a sponsor. And I remember my sponsor at the beginning of the step said, I think you need to meditate as a matter of urgency. <laughs> so, and, and I would say that that has been hugely useful. Um, I cycle a lot as well. Um, and sometimes after these client calls, I go for a sort of an embarrassingly angry cycle, you know. <laughs> um, I'm not good angry, by the way. I'm kind of pathetic. So I know that I need to get out of that state as quickly as I can because it's embarrassing for everybody. Um, but I think, I suppose it's always, the other thing that I do on a regular basis is acknowledge, is try to, I write a gratitude list every morning because I think that it it sets my brain the task of trying to think of the upsides. Hmm. And even when I'm dealing with a difficult client, I kind of think about where I was back in 2014, where I wasn't doing something creative, where I wasn't doing comedy, where I wasn't writing scripts, I wasn't directing, where I was drinking, which I don't do now. And I go, Alex, is it really that bad? Hmm. And... um, I think that dose of perspective is always hugely needed at those moments because you realise you're never going to be able to, no one's ever going to agree on everything. You know, you just need to come back to my family home to recognise that no one agrees on that much. (laughs) You know, and I think um, if you suddenly think that you're going to sail through a creative process with no criticism or whatever, and I've definitely had that before, I think I'm I'm being naive, you know. Mm. So once you've accepted that, it becomes a lot easier to stomach. Absolutely. Talk to me about sober dating. Where did this idea come from? Uh, well, I got sober and I wanted a girlfriend. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, no, I, I, um, I got sober two and a half years ago um, because I, well, in short, because I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I, my drinking, <laughs> my drinking was such that I didn't drink all the time, so I didn't think I could be an alcoholic because I was like, well, I'm not, I'm not seventy and I'm not getting shit-faced on white lightning at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. So I thought, well, I don't really fit the brief. However, uh, other things beg to differ. And basically, I realized that the definition is of someone who, once they start, can't stop. Hmm. So once that, once I'd accepted that truth, um, I kind of went into AA, did the steps, and then 
me and my partner at the time sadly uh, broke up because it wasn't quite the right relationship. And after about a year and a half, I just kind of thought, do you know what? I've done enough of work on myself. I went through therapy. I did life coaching. I went through the AA steps twice um, and just thought, do you know what? I, I really need to start giving dating a go. But it was it was interesting because so much of my dating before that had revolved around booze, hmm. you know. Um, and so it was kind of a reevaluation of what I actually wanted. But strangely enough, you get such a clarity with sober dating that you don't get before, which is a blessing and a curse. You know, I think <laughs> the blessing is you immediately know if you click with someone or don't click with someone. And the, the curse is, is that you kind of need to accept it and not try to force something. Whereas what I used to normally do is go, oh, I'm not sure we get on why don't we just get pissed and then see what happens? And then funnily enough, after three drinks, you go, oh God, I think we've actually got a real connection here. Um, and so <laughs> you get this full sense of um, this full sense of connection, which is kind of short lived as well because it wears off just as soon as the alcohol does. So it's, it, it's been nice in that way. Would you say if someone is, is serious about finding a long-term partner and they're, and they're dating that they don't drink? I think it's I think it's useful um, because I think you're I don't think it's it's ne it's hugely necessary. But I think it's funny that for me, it always struck me that I was always about to have a drink or drinking probably for the first five or six dates, which kind of feels like quite a key decision making time. <laughs> you think, <laughs> you know, and, and actually I think you can. What I've realized from being sober is that I get to have such amazing conversations with people. I always thought that um, I could never have that feeling of connection before. And this goes for, you know, conversations across the board. When I see friends or go to weddings or whatever, I always used to think, oh, my God, how am I going to interact with people now that I'm not drinking? And actually, I have better conversations. And I think I suppose I've changed definitely as a result. But I think it's you spot things and you are able to double down on topics that you're kind of interested in and you're just a lot more awake hmm. and so I think it gives you a lot greater insight into whether the other person's kind of on your wavelength I think right and wrong is kind of a binary thing I think it's about wavelength and I think it's about timing hmm. absolutely dare I ask how the dating has gone since has it uh, been successful well... <laughs> um successful in some ways because actually it's made me reflect back and realize that um I don't need a relationship which is something that I think I needed hmm. when I was younger I didn't have any confidence and so I think I went into comedy as a result of that actually because I was a performer and so I wanted relationships to fill in the blanks of my own personality hmm. Whereas I went through the steps and have worked on myself, I kind of do affirmations in the mirror, which is very cringe, but you get over it. Um, you you slowly build up your confidence and weirdly enough, you become worryingly content to be by yourself. Mm. So whilst the dating is really lovely, um, I think you kind of almost need to invest in it as a, if you if you really want to find someone, I think you can either let it happen organically, which I'm now doing, or you can try and keep rolling the dice by going on dating apps, etc. But I just never, 
I found they were kind of a misuse of my time. Um, and because also I think my headspace when I've been on dating apps previously is that I needed a girlfriend. And as I said, I'm not in that headspace anymore. So I kind of feel like I'm, and I've seen it happen. I kind of, I think that frequency means that you end up wanting to look for someone who feels like they're in a similar space, not saying that it's right or wrong when it comes to dating apps, but that's just where I am now. So at the moment, in answer to your question, I, I can never answer with like just a sentence. You know what I mean? Um, just, uh, yeah, I am happily single. Hmm. I'd say that being content in your own company is the ideal prelude to finding the perfect partner. Otherwise, there's always an air of desperation. I don't know if you know, Alex, but and this doesn't make me an expert by any means. But back in 2007, I wrote a book about dating uh, and many of those dates were sober. Uh, mainly because they were, I was trying to date a hundred women in a hundred days, and there's only so many dates you can fit in before eleven o'clock. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I'm not Love necessarily that. going to recommend the book, but I, I, my conclusion was that you need to be completely happy by yourself before going on any form of dating, and maybe swiping right or swiping left isn't isn't the best way to find your forever partner. Well, I. I think everybody arrives at that same conclusion at different points, I think, mate. I definitely will read that book. I'd like to um, think they arrive at, those, uh, at that same point, but with a 55% divorce rate, I'm not sure that they do. <laughs> mm, I, well, I think there's a... Yeah, that's very... I think, I suppose it's... I've been reading a book recently called The Path Less Travelled, and um, one of the things that they say in it is is kind of a commitment to the truth. And I think... Um, or commitment to honesty, anyway. I'm paraphrasing it badly, but it's one of the two. And I think the thing with dating is that I've realised, but also with relationships, is that for me, um, you need to continue to, you know, ev every day you need to make a kind of a new commitment to, to staying in that relationship. And I know that the reason that me and my ex broke up is because we simply wanted different things, but we weren't ready to accept that. And I wasn't ready to accept that fact either. So, um, and I think the thing is with divorce rates is as well, and I got it from being single at kind of 34, was that I think society tells you that part of growing up and nailing life is by finding someone, settling down, getting married. I remember I had like 14 weddings in one year a couple of, a couple of years ago, <sighs> and then having kids and, you know, and what, I think quite a lot of people find, I don't know because I haven't been there, is that they tick all the boxes and then they go, but wait, I'm not happy. This is what I was kind of promised. You know, what do I do now? And um, I think sometimes just being married, which is definitely how I felt, was being married eclipsed who I was actually married to. And that doesn't seem... <laughs> the right way round. Um, so I think it's kind of been a lucky, a lucky coincidence for me by staying single that I've been able to arrive at that realisation because I think if I wasn't able to have had this time, I might not have been able to do it because, you know, hmm. life gets in the way and you don't have that time to kind of explore yourself and your own confidence. And yeah, so I think you're right. Talking of confidence, we let's let's gently shimmy into Corona time. <laughs> you're you're largely a freelancer. 
and this isn't an easy time for for anyone but freelancers certainly seem to be uh towards the bottom of the pile when it comes to uh job expectation shall we say this has been a tricky a tricky few weeks and it's it's certainly going to continue how how are you coping with uh with coronavirus and and the uncertainty ahead how's it affected your work and would you say that you know your your therapy and the steps uh recovering from alcoholism are going to help you um so yeah, one of the things I've done, I think, is um, register for universal credit. Uh, <laughs> no, I think it's. Uh, I think you're right. I think with for in order of what you were saying, Dave. I think like the by being self-employed currently, I'm sure things will change over the coming days. But it it does feel like we are close to the bottom of the pile, and I think we're already being kind of under the microscope with IR35. So in reality, a lot of my work had dried up you know, because of that coming in and there being a bit of confusion because it felt like a grey area to quite a lot of employers, especially in the creative industries. So it was already pretty dicey and then Corona hit and it became even more dicey, but they delayed IR35, so it was slightly less dicey, but there's still no work. So, (laughs) (laughs) but I think it's, um, I recognise that, I think, because I've recognised actually that my day-to-day as a freelance writer hasn't massively changed. The only thing really is that I don't go to yoga. (laughs) You know, I still spend quite a lot of time on my own. I would say 90% of my time I spend on my own. Um, And I think there aren't a huge amount of jobs at the moment. Um, But I think AA, I think it's, it's funny actually that you this is sometimes where I think I've spoken a lot of with a lot of people within AA and we, and we all kind of agree that having a program is hugely useful in life anyway, whereas at the moment it is critical. And you kind of, it's a funny irony that you need to become an alcoholic to be given something that is so not only life affirming, but helpful when you are in times of extreme uncertainty, like everyone is. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it gives you perspective because you're able to listen to other alcoholics who are going through very different things. And I think it's that perspective that helps me from bringing out the violin and going poor me because there are a lot of people in worse situations than I am. Um, It gives you tools like gratitude lists because I think that without that, it is, I think, I remember hearing this podcast where they said that... um, happiness doesn't create gratitude gratitude creates happiness and i think that is that it is a skill um that you need to practice on a regular basis and i think without a few more of those tools i just i always thought that my mental health was just a fixed thing you know i i couldn't affect nothing that i did on a day-to-day basis could affect how i feel but i realized that the total opposite is true. And I think at the moment where there's nothing any of us can do because none of us know the pure, the, the total extent of this, um, all we have to do is have faith and acknowledge that all we can do is put in action, but we have to detach ourselves from the outcomes because I've never been able to predict an outcome of anything, let alone during this point. So it's a totally fruitless, you know, um, it's a total waste of time 
uh, as far as I'm concerned, because I've tried to predict life, I've tried to control it, I've tried to manipulate it. In fact, I think alcoholism for me is an extreme case of um, I can't control life, so I drink because otherwise my, you know, because um, it's the only thing I can control. And um, I think I've realised that all I can control is my behaviour and how I view the world and how I apply myself and work, but I can do no more than that. Hmm. Very, very wise. What would you say to people who are who are stuck at home for the first time, uh, usually out to work, never had to spend multiple days, uh, let alone three weeks or perhaps more at a stretch inside the same room? Uh, any 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 tips for survival? Uh, <laughs> well, I think. I remember hearing a, so I'm going to paraphrase from someone else, but I remember listening to the TED Radio Hour recently and there was the author of Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert, mm. who um, gave this amazing piece of advice because I think I feel lucky that I've got passion projects that I can work on. So, um, you know, I've got a string of writing projects that I know that I can sit with and, and work on, whereas for a lot of people... I think, who might work, but they don't necessarily know what their passions are. What Elizabeth Gilbert says is to follow your curiosity because it's a lot more accessible if you don't necessarily have a passion and you never know where that curiosity is going to lead you. And I think, for me, the tips for survival that I've tried to apply over the course of the last couple of weeks that I've been in isolation are um, deleting as many apps as I can from my phone, <laughs> um, I remember I actually went on a date with a girl who used to work at Twitter and she told me in no uncertain terms, get rid of every app that you can on your phone. So I deleted emails off my phone, deleted Instagram, you know, uh, as much as I as much as I could, because in reality, they're all stealing little micro fragments of my time and none of them make me feel any happier. Mm. So I I would say switch off your phone as much as possible. Um have a think and ponder about what you actually think you're curious about at the moment. And um, I find, for me, trying to... I learned this technique when it comes to actually applying myself and not procrastinating called the Pomodoro technique, which I found to be hugely kind of life-changing, really, in terms of my productivity, um, where you do 25 minutes on... So you basically set a timer, or I set a timer on my phone for 25 minutes. I put my phone on airplane mode. I work on one specific task for 25 minutes. When the alarm goes off, I then have a 10 minutes break where I can um, do whatever I want. And I found that, and I remember it from another podcast that I listened to because they said that when people are, it, it doesn't necessarily matter what you're doing, but the happiest people are the people that are focusing on one task at a time. So I try to apply that logic rather than focusing on 1500 by looking at the home page of my iPhone. One task at a time, even if that task just lasts 25 minutes. Exactly. Absolutely perfect. Alex, I think that is a really lovely place to leave it. Uh, but before I, I wind up and give people your website and your Instagram so they can, they can check you out, if they had to seek out one video uh, or, or piece of work that you've created, which one would you recommend? <laughs> it's 
so the film that me and my friend, my uh, comedy partner, didn't really think was any good, but it, so it shows what we know, is a uh, comedy sketch we made a few years ago called Bad News about two newsreaders who can't stop talking like newsreaders. And we weren't going to release it, but somehow, but we, our director persuaded us to, and it went viral. It even appeared on Al Jazeera really randomly. <laughs> so <laughs> totally, totally nuts. Um, but I would uh, encourage people, because in these uncertain times as well, I think it's always nice to have a laugh. So hopefully we can raise a smile. So it's, on, it's called Bad News and it's on Vimeo. And we're called Midbrow. Absolutely brilliant. Alex, thanks so much for giving us some of your time. And if you'd like to check out some of Alex's work, you can do so on his website at alexpcoop.com and on social media. He's on Instagram, alex underscore p underscore cooper. Please subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. And if you enjoy the podcast, I'd love it if you could leave a thoughtful review. Stay tuned for a feast of inspirational guests and tales that I very much hope will encourage you to begin your own new journey.